Hello and welcome to the Catapult High Performance Podcast. This podcast is a Catapult initiative created to serve as a learning and development tool for performance practitioners. We'll be sharing the latest sports science research, user stories and best practices, and stories of positive social impact that stem from sport itself. We are committed to delivering world-class support to help you improve the performance of your athletes and your team. So join us in the biggest performance community in elite sport for a journey of collective development. G'day, I hope you enjoyed the upcoming podcasts. In this episode, we spoke with Matt Little. Matt is Andy Murray's strength and conditioning coach, and he's also part of the Great Britain Davis Cup team. In addition to Matt, we also had Catapult's very own sports scientist, Hannah Pitt, and product and services specialist, Joe Baker, on the podcast. Both have completed some impressive work and extensive work in the sport of tennis, which is a, a field that's really flourishing with technological aspects at the moment and new technology. Alongside your host, Will Ambler, Matt and Hannah and Joe discuss all things tennis and technology. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the podcast. Tune in now. Cheers. Uh, to get us started then, Matt, um, can you provide the listeners a bit of context of sports science in tennis? Um, maybe touching as to why five, ten years ago, what it was like and how it relates to the current times. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been working in tennis my, my whole life, really, for the last 20 years. So I've seen a reasonable amount of change. Um, probably sports science being the, one of the biggest changes and sports medicine being one of the biggest changes in terms of how tennis operates. Um, probably around 10 years ago, you would say that strength and conditioning was a much more of an established practice, an established profession. Um, so, you know, ten, that wasn't when sort of tennis for fitness first came into tennis. Of course, it's been there for years and years, decades, in fact. But actually, across the board, kind of everyone was really accepted that they, they needed a strength and conditioning coach. Every tennis centre that had ambitions of, of producing players would would have a full-time strength and conditioning coach and be accessing those resources. So, so really, I'd say from the last kind of 10 years or so, strength and conditioning is just an accepted norm. Uh, as is sports science, um, you know, but but the, the, the wearable technology side of things is something that's probably become more and more prevalent, but still has a very long way to go in tennis. So when I first started working with Andy, um, I was still working with the LTA with um, Carl Cook and Emma Anderson, and they were starting to dabble in the use of Catapult. Um, and so I began using it with Andy um yeah probably around 10 years ago and have kind of slowly grown the amount of usage and the amount of occasions where we would use the technology in his on-court training practice uh, and use that to inform our sessions as well so so yeah that's become more and more prevalent i'd say over the last 10 years but um still quite a long way to go with it great so you touched on athlete tracking there matt um, mm. What were the perhaps reasons? I know you said about um, getting more information and into training practice and match loads, or we've discussed that before at least. Um, were they the main drivers as to why you adopted the wearable tech, or was it just to support your your insights for Andy and the other players that you work with? Yeah, I, ju- I just think that it, it, it's it's been long overdue, really, that, that we want to have more objective data and more information around what's actually happening on the court. 
to the player um, and, and, and what's happening to their bodies and the impacts of the sessions on the players' bodies. Um, you know, from a from a sports science perspective, the more data we can get, the better. Certainly at this stage in tennis, like I say, with it being still relatively new to the sport. Um, and so Andy being quite a data-driven player as well, someone who's interested in, in trying to find an edge through data. Um, he's very analytical of his opponents and he's very analytical of himself, both in using video technology um, and, and other kinds of technology, really. So, so it, it also was a nice fit with him as a player to try and give him more information, uh, objective information around what's happening to him on the practice court. And then the challenge has always been as well to find out what's happening on the match court and then cross-reference the two to see how closely we're, we're matching what's happening in a match versus what's happening on the practice court. I, um, it's just to kind of chip in here, Matt. Um, I suppose Andy having that kind of natural interest has really helped with the the application and, and, and buy-in um, from his side of things. So you're not necessarily fighting with the athlete to get him to where the technology he's bought in, he understands what it can do for him. Um, but how, how kind of did you assist that? Did you did you kind of say, right, this is, this, this is these are the benefits that it'll bring? Or was it just from me off? No, it's, it's, it's been a kind of a bit of a learning process for all of us. Um, and like any athlete, there's been periods of time when Andy's been really into the data and really interested in, in finding out about it. And there's been other periods of time when he's not been quite so interested in, in the data. So it's just been a bit of perseverance on all fronts, really, um, to make sure that, uh, that we're using it at the right times for the right reasons. And we're not just using it kind of carte blanche for every single session. To, to just measure things for the sake of measuring them. There's always been, for me, a specific purpose because, you know, we'll probably come on to talk about it, but because the wearing of the vest while playing tennis can can be problematic for players, um, I've, been, I've been quite kind of targeted at the times when I've wanted to use it specifically in training blocks where he's doing a high volume of practice uh, or around injuries and return to play and those things, it's been those have been the times when I've really tried to to introduce it a lot. And actually, Andy has asked to use it as well on on, on those occasions too. So that's been been quite good because he's he's educated in what it can tell him and he knows he knows the the limitations and and potentially the irritations of wearing it as well. So. So yeah, it's been it's been a, a bit of a journey that I guess we've all been on as a team, including the coaching staff as well, because it's something that's quite new for them. Um, and managing their relationship with the data has also been something that has been a learning process for me for me too. Thanks for that, Matt. Um, I think Hannah's going to provide a bit of context as to why and how the players and, and perhaps what they would use it for if that's okay um it's just interesting from from her side of things having worked with you in the past but also with other players so hannah could you perhaps just detail and explain how the players use it um and maybe matt could bring in some examples of say how andy's and um, when and how andy's using using the tracking technology yeah sure so uh just to touch on some of the things that matt just said like firstly 
Um, when we utilise these athlete training technologies, um, we allow the player and the coach to get an insight into the external and the internal loads of training and competition. Um, and just to summarise that, like the, the external loads is the work completed by the player. Um, and examples of these such as like number of axels and D cells, uh, you've got player load, you've got metres per minute. Whereas the internal load is that physiological response to the external load. And this is more of a representation of how the players are reacting to training and competition. Um, and examples of these metrics would be sort of minutes spent above 85% of a player's max heart rate or heart rate exertion, which is coming from a heart rate belt, which is worn alongside the, the GPS device in the back of the vest. So in order to be able to get this information, as Matt said previously, it requires the player to wear the device during competition and training. Um, and as we've touched on, like this, this can cause some issues, but having this information allows the coach to really start quantifying the demands of tennis. And with this data collected, you can start answering any performance questions, such as like, what was the most demanding point within a match? Um, what's the most uh, demanding set um, during a tournament and things like that? So the external loads and the response to these external loads can be broken down into individual drills during training or even down to each point during matches, if that's what a coach is interested in. Uh, this information could be really useful to the coach when they're looking at what drills to implement during a training block or even a lead up to a tournament. Um, and not only that, are we talking about players that are, um, I guess, fit and that they're competing in tournaments. It's also especially useful um, within a rehab process. Um, so if we know the demands of a player's sort of averages during a match then we can kind of know what we need to prepare that player for when they're going back through a rehabilitation process so overall like if we're if a player is exposed to suitable external loads which are prescribed by the coach then like we have that chance of achieving the desired performance outcomes but at the same time like having this data um, is really valuable because actually excessive prescribed training loads can increase, um, can increase fatigue, sorry, and increase the risk of those training load injuries. So it's really a fine balance of sort of finding out like a performance sweet spot. Um, so you can see that there definitely benefits to utilising training load and monitoring within tennis um, as it can improve performance and reduce the risk of injury. And uh, That's spot on, Hannah, and I think... One of the things that we've we've done, and I've I've done, we were doing around the Battle of the Brits when we used the technology both in matches, was to get the the coaching teams together after the tournament and speak to them about the data that we found, but put, to put things into very simple terms, you know, uh, of this is how hard, as Hannah says, this particular game was or this particular set. This is the actual external load that your body went through. These were the heart rates that you are getting out there on the court um, and to keep it pretty simple for the, for the coaches to, to, to hear, okay, if you do X amount of player load on the court, a difficult game in that match was this amount of player load and therefore your practice sessions need to reflect this number of difficult games. Um, and one of the things I'm quite passionate about having learned so much using the catapult with, with players for the last decade um, not just Andy but many other players 
it is the, the amount of external loading that goes on to the players in practice sessions versus in matches um, because the, the, there is a significant um, a difference in terms of how hard players train for for matches and how hard matches actually are um, because particularly when we just look at player load itself you know I've seen very well pretty much across the board examples of players that are putting way way more external load on their bodies during practice than they are in matches some some will be putting kind of nine ten eleven sets worth of external load on their bodies per day um, which is akin to asking a a marathon runner to, to run 40 miles a day, which you just, you know, you might very occasionally do, but you would not use that as a standard practice um, for, for an endurance sport at the Battle of the Brits. I think especially the players that hadn't worn it much before had some, some uh, they were a bit pensive about wearing a vest in a competition, but most of them said that after the first kind of, after the warm up. And after the first game or two that they kind of, they forgot they were even wearing it. And I think that's certainly been our experience. Um, generally, when, uh, when players have been wearing it, the ones they've been wearing it for, for a, a short period of time, they've generally forgotten about it. Although tennis is a sport which is played often in, uh, in high heat and humidity. So adding a layer uh, to, to what they're wearing is, is something that they're also not keen to do. So that's, that potentially could could pose issues from that side of it. The the price point potentially of the the technology has been another issue. Um, so you've got kind of players that are ranked, let's say, outside the top 150 in the world, who financially probably don't necessarily have the resources to to put towards you know. Uh, the kind of the full service of a wearable technology. Um, so they would be perhaps put off by the price point of, get, of getting the full system and full support around that. So they would face logistics. So if they potentially wanted to explore the use of the technology, they might be put off because of that. Um, and then you've got the, the, you know, the higher ranked players who, 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 who the price point isn't necessarily an issue for, but it is in a different way in that they're thinking, okay, well, what, what am I going to get back for investing this money? You know, what information, how useful is it? How informative is it going to be? You know, is it, is it for me worth investing this amount of money in this particular piece of technology for the information I'm going to get back? Um, which is, which is a, it's a tricky one, but actually, you don't know how useful the information is going to be until you start wearing it and actually start seeing objective data around your practice sessions and, of course, in matches. And that's that's been another kind of an issue, really, is the fact that they haven't been able to wear it in matches. Therefore, we've only really been able to get practice sessions and practice sets up until the Battle of the Brits recently where you know, we had a real breakthrough and the ATP um, next-gen finals as well where we had some breakthroughs in terms of actually getting some 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 proper in-match data uh, and it's credit to the LTA that they've invested in the technology as well so that we were able to to access that information in the matches in the Battle of the Brits. What were the key takeaways then from the Battle of the Brits and that 
next gen series um well it was, it was it was actually great to be a part of you know hannah and i were were sitting you know not courtside but you know very close to the court watching the matches live and, and to see the physical stories of the matches unfolding in front of us in terms of data whilst watching the matches and having some understanding of what's happening on the court from a tactical perspective and linking that to the data that we were getting was for me just it was just you know i suppose i'm i'm becoming a bit of a geek in this area but it was really quite exciting to see some of the internal and external data that was that was being produced live whilst watching the matches um, and it was great to then be able to kind of recount that story back to the player so for example some players the conversation was around energy management that actually their external loading and internal loading data you know their heart rates and their player loads were super high at the very start of a match where they might have been playing against an opponent that was potentially better than them so they really went out with you know went out and started the match with a high amount of intensity um, but actually they weren't necessarily able to keep that high intensity they'd kind of shot their bolts at the start of the match and then kind of spent the next 30 or 45 minutes kind of recovering almost during the match their their, their stats kind of nosedived until the kind of they lost the first set and then they were able to regain some momentum once they'd recovered so so having a conversation about energy management for some was was very interesting and then for others it was to say look you you know you you produced your best results and you got your best scores and you were most effective when you were operating at very high heart rates and very high intensities therefore that needs to be you know a key component of your training is making sure that you're training at these intensities so that you can keep reproducing that level of intensity in matches. Um, so we said we had one player in particular, you know, who was kind of average, averaging 170 beats a minute um, in, you know, for the for an entire tiebreak or for an entire game of a set. Um, you know, he was maxing out at 187, 188 heart rate. You know, but actually, whilst we were looking at him on the screen. He didn't look like someone who was at 187 heart rate and he was able to produce very, very high levels of tennis whilst at that heart rate. So, again, it was just it was really good to be able to sit down with the teams afterwards and go through game by game. OK, at one love in the first set, this is how it looked when you broke serve for, to, to go up 4-2 in the second set. This was the amount of intensity you brought to that game. And actually, when you can link data to the story of the match or the story of what's happening out there from a tactical perspective, then it actually comes alive for coaches. And it isn't just numbers on a page. It actually tells the flow of, of the match. And so, so that for me was something that was, that was by far and away the most effective way we use the data and, and, and how I would see things going forward in the sport is to bring that data alive for, for teams. And um, Matt, just touching on that uh, that kind of buy-in from coaches, do you think um, do you think that gives you as a an SNC coach um, more of a, a voice in the in the planning of um, training sessions as a whole? So not just the the physical uh, component, the warm up, for example, but more of the technical drills. Does does that increase your input? Um, 
having the data there to, to discuss with your with your coaches. It really does, but uh, but this is a this is a fine balance to strike, and I kind of I, I mentioned that um, at the start was that managing the relationship between the coaches and this data, which I'm sure people in in football and rugby and, and all the other sports that use this stuff, um, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I'm sure they've all had this journey to go on, which we're going on in tennis, is that coaches don't want to be dictated to by data. Um, they don't they don't want a machine to tell them how to run their sessions. No, absolutely. Um, and, and that's that's certainly not the case, And that, but that's been something I've been really keen to try to avoid, is to not have you know, the device tell them what they should and shouldn't be doing, what they can and can and can't be doing. But actually, just to be um, some support in decision-making, as you say, that, okay, this is a decision we're thinking of making. What what would the data say in order to back that decision up or to make us ask a question about that decision? That's, that's more the emphasis, really. So how tough is today's tennis session going to be? Well, the player's quite fatigued and quite sore, okay, well, we know they did X player load and this number of high-intensity movements yesterday. Therefore, perhaps today we should look at uh, a lower player load and a lower number of of high-intensity movements. You know, that would be an example of where the the data would just simply support a decision we were thinking of making anyway, rather than me walking in and saying, catapult says, no, you're only doing an hour today because look at the data we had yesterday yesterday. You know, it, you're, you're not going to get uh, a great deal of, of buy-in from coaches if, if that continues to be the conversation. Thanks, Matt. Um, I think uh, it touches on sort of themes of more education and not necessarily replacing the coach. Um, it's kind of to be used alongside the coaches rather than replace them, essentially. Um, and as one of the things that um, at least Hannah's mentioned to me before is, is the is the theme of education. Um, could you touch on that at all, Hannah? Yeah, sure. Um, I think like a lot of what Matt was just saying in terms of sort of player adoption um, at the higher levels, um, where maybe they're, they're having to sort of purchase a device themselves. Like if they don't understand why they're being told to wear the device, um, then why would you wear it? You know, like Coming back to to sort of how sports science was in football 10 years ago, players were refusing to wear vests because they weren't properly educated on how it's going to benefit them. Um, A tennis player's career could be um, relatively short, you know, and if a player understands the the reasons how it can enhance performance, but also at the same time reduce the risk of injury, then it's going to um, assist with like uh, the longevity of their career. and I think the Battle of the Brits was sort of revolutionary in that way. You know, you had you had the the top British tennis players wearing the devices for the first time for some of them, and like that they understood like the the work that Matt was doing with them in terms of feeding the data back. Like it meant that they were educated on the information they were receiving. Um, also, at the same time, like we haven't actually mentioned that um, this was being broadcasted um, on Amazon, um, and we had like a panel of commentators that were asking for data all the time, you know, like they, they suddenly saw how this data that you can collect from uh, wearable technology can actually assist them in some aspects, you know, like the, 
They've then got information to back up um, why a player has just done what they have done on court. Um, and it was great to see that they were so interested in learning about the technology, what the different metrics meant and things like that. And I think like we need to start from the sort of the college systems, um, get these players educated into the reasons why uh, athlete monitoring is so important. Um, so that stays with them then as they progress up um, their career. And forgive me for being a bit naive in this area, but why why is the Battle of the Brits kind of the first tournament that, or one of the first tournaments that allowed the players to wear it during matches? One of the big barriers um, to entry for um, for users has been the fact that they've not been allowed to use the technology in game. Um, so subsequently, we've um, we've gone down the route of getting uh, two of our technologies, um, the Optimis. Five and the Vector S7 PAT approved um, for use in ITF sanctioned competitions. Um, so, like Matt and Hannah alluded to earlier, this this allows players to gain an insight from their match play um, and take that insight onto the onto the training court. So, as a player, if I know um, the external output um, of the longest or hardest point game or set. This allows me to replicate it or a percentage of it in practice, um, depending on whether it's uh, a maintenance or, or a progressive overload day. Um, it's important to to note though, uh, although we have ITF approval, um, the ATP and WTA are yet to make a decision on w- whether they want to allow the use of wearables across their respective tours. Um, so our wearable users are encouraged to ask tournament organisers um, ahead of use uh, in match play. So just on that then, Matt, um, is it difficult to actually understand what, what the match demands are then um, from when, when the players go to, to the tournaments? Yeah, I mean, just based on such a small amount of information, you know, we can we can make some inferrals and, and we, can, we can look at when the players play practice sets before tournaments. Um, but one of the things that we've we've seen so much with people coming out of lockdown and from COVID is that you just can't replicate the same level of intensity of a live match where there's something really on it versus a practice match. Um, and, and therefore, you get players breaking down with injuries when they come back to proper competition, despite the fact that they may have been playing practice sets and practice matches for weeks beforehand. It just isn't the same. So, so even though it's it's great to have the data from from practice um but on a positive front you know why wouldn't you want that objective data when you're working with teenage athletes and young athletes who are growing and going through so much change in their bodies that you would get external loading data and internal loading data to say this is how hard they're working on a daily basis um you know, and, and like we've talked about, educating coaches in understanding the physical impact of the tennis sessions that they are putting onto the player. So even junior players actually only play four games in a set. Uh, but but most junior players would be used to doing two lots of two hours on the tennis court for their for their practice sessions. You know, two lots of two hours is probably, like I've said before, maybe eight sets. Of competitive men's tennis would be would be be the same kind of impact loading as two times two hours. So 
you know, and, and that's men playing up to six games or seven games in a in a set. The kids are only playing four games. Therefore, that's actually probably more like 12, 13, 14 sets of their tennis. So I I'm not pointing a finger at coaches because they haven't had this information before. So it's not their fault that they don't, you know, no, we, we didn't know this before. Um, another aspect would be um, speaking to coaches around them doing speed training on the court. You know, okay, today we're going to work on speed, but then we look at the data at the end of the tennis session and there's been no meters, zero meters in high speed zones for that tennis session. So actually um, they haven't worked on speed in that tennis session, even though they think they may have. They may have worked on a different quality, which they thought was speed, but actually it wasn't because the player's done no meters in high speed zones. So again, we can't point the finger at coaches because they haven't had this data before, um, but they do have access to it now. Um, and that for me, in terms of talking about the future of, of sports science and tennis, it would be one, getting that education around objective data and, and what our sessions that we prescribe, what impact they have on the player's body, but then also like we talked about earlier, linking physical data to technical and tactical objectives on the court is where it starts to become really exciting and to have uh, a, a very consistent dialogue across the board of coaches speaking to each other about their players' max speeds and about their high the, their numbers of high intensity change direction, about, about their players' heart rates in match situations, you know, to to have these kinds of conversations going on across the board, as Joe says, with a new generation of coaches um, and a new generation of players who have a genuine interest in this data uh, and want to use it to inform their, their daily practice. I think, um, I think, like you said there, Matt, I think the, the key really is for coaches to see this technology as a tool um, and to aid them in, in their practice rather than replacement of them. Um, yeah. you'll, never, you'll never ever replace a coach's um, kind of intuition and, and that type of thing on, on court. But if we can assist them in, in kind of fine-tuning some of their practices, then fantastic. Yeah, that's definitely how this, this technology should be viewed um, by them. And then who who are the leaders in, in the field? Then Matt and potentially Hannah. Like um, We mentioned about the WTA not giving approval and, and the ATP, but is the LTA is kind of driving this forward quite positively, aren't they, Hannah? Yeah, that's correct. So with all the barriers that uh, Matt has just mentioned, like it must be said that the LTA have been forward thinking in this regard um, and actually at the Battle of the Brits the LTA were working alongside us um, in communicating with the players um, and they have gone on to adopt the technology and have used it within um, competition since then um, which is great to see and I understand that the the guys over at Tennis Australia are doing similar um, but we definitely need to see I guess more um, colleges over in the US or academies adopting this technology with the younger players as Joe said um, if they're ed educated at a young age we're more likely to see them adopt this um, later on in their career um, and we've already spoken about the positives that this can have 
Matt, in terms of um, the LTA, what's your experience with of their use of their technology? Do you see them um, kind of implementing this and kind of building a pathway for their for the younger players as they come up through the ranks? Well, I, th- I think they've got a real opportunity to to influence culture. Um, certainly in British tennis, obviously that's one of their roles, I suppose. But I think there's an opportunity there because they have invested in the tech that it's sitting there at the at the tennis center, you know. Um, so so for me, you know, that that would be a part of of their role, and I'm sure that's from a sports. Well, I know from a sports science perspective, that's their hope is to is to have the players wearing wearing the tech in practice uh, and and potentially in matches that are held at the centre. Um, like you say, I think Tennis Australia are doing the same thing. But but in order to do that, you you in order to change culture, you need someone there kind of each day. And I know Chris McLeod and Dan Lewandon are, are, are doing this. Someone there each day, basically, say you know, handing the the vest to the players to kind of remind them because it isn't a part of their daily kind of practice and their daily training. You need someone kind of in their face each day, you know, just just gently reminding them. Look, you know, what, why don't you wear it on court today and let's let's see what this information tells us about your your tennis session today. Um, you know, that's that's how you in that's how you influence culture is from the very top. Um, and, and I know that speaking to the heads of men's tennis and, and, and the, the heads of women's tennis, that, that they're interested in this data. Um, and, and that's how we're going to get change is from the very top. Um, you know, speaking to the ATP, I know, again, there's a, there's a desire to, to explore this technology. Um, but because it's quite a new subject for them, they're just not quite sure how to go about it. And how to make the correct decisions for it that are in the best interests of the sport. You know, they've got to protect the interests of the sport and the players, of course. Um, and the WTA, they're quite forward-thinking as well. So I, I, I do think we're we're getting closer. Um, but in order to kind of make breakthroughs, people, as you say, at the very top, need to see the value um, and need to realise the potential of, of any wearable tech. You know, because I think for them, they feel like it's a little bit of a wild west, you know, because there are so many different devices and, and, and potential things to to kind of to use out there. I think they're just they're, they're just treading very carefully um, at the moment. But I think once the once the door opens and once they kind of start allowing this stuff more more regularly across the board and, and as Hannah says, when more colleges and more academies start investing in the tech as well, hopefully you'll start to see players players requesting to wear this stuff in tournaments and putting pressure on the governing bodies to to provide the tech and to allow its use in competitions. I think that's it's kind of a two pronged attack really in terms of creating culture. People at the very top, and then actually the players who also have you know a very powerful say in what goes on, pushing the use of it as well. Matt, just a question for you. Like we we've kind of touched on just um, what we can currently monitor, but talking about going forwards or moving forwards, like in terms of future developments with the wearable technology, we we have currently uh, developed integrated heart rate vests, um, so that 
means that a player no longer has to wear a heart rate belt and a GPS vest. Uh, it's all integrated in one. So that that might assist with the adoption of players actually wearing that. But what else can you think of that might be a, a potential future development that will help with this adoption or something that you've spoken to coaches with and they say oh, it'll be useful to get this information alongside the information we can currently provide? Yeah, I think stroke detection is something that we've we've looked at, and I know I know you guys are are developing and have developed. So stroke detection, you know, numbers of forehands, numbers of backhands, numbers of movements to those those. But like I say, I think also creating uh, a link which which brings alive what's happening on the court. So I think linking this data to live video, um, at, I think that's going to help. Not the sales pitch, but help bring the data alive for players and teams to say, look, that was your max speed there, which was 6.6 meters a second. And this was the sprint that you did to, to hit that. You know, um, this is a drop shot that you didn't manage to pick up. The ball bounced twice. You lost the point. And this was your speed moving to that ball. Therefore, can we start to look at improving your speed and increasing your speed so that actually you pick that ball up in that point in that match? And don't potentially lose that point. You know, I think, I think that's where we need to go with it. it. Is is ways to link the data to what they are seeing, feeling, and doing on a daily basis, um, with shot detection and with linking the data to video footage. I think that's that's a big step forward. When I've heard other sports scientists speak and other strength and conditioning coaches in tennis speak. They also have question marks over, you know, the pinpoint accuracy uh, of some of the data, um, you know, because the, the the very small finite movements that tennis is is that's prevalent in tennis, you know, players move usually around three meters and then change direction. That they have question marks over, you know, exactly how accurate the data is. Uh, and I, I'm sure you guys will go on to to talk about that. But but for me also, just from a, a practical standpoint, you know, in tennis, we're usually dealing with an N of one. We're dealing with just our one player. Um, and so for me, even if I'm just looking at the player load and the accelerometry information with the player load, if my player is wearing the unit on Monday and the same player is wearing the same unit on Tuesday, I am still getting a very nice comparison of how difficult Monday was versus Tuesday, um, which for me, ultimately, when I really boil down into just the, the simplest form of analysis for the technology is, is one of the big questions that I would like answered is how hard is today versus tomorrow? How hard is this week versus next week? You know, how hard was this year versus last year? year potentially um, so for me and I know the technology is getting more and more accurate um, for me measuring something is better is way better actually than not measuring anything um, and that's that's always been my argument against that that particular that particular comment around wearable technology yeah I don't disagree with you Matt I think that there's gaps um, that we could explore as a company, but there's also um, development and and kind of demonstrations and testing that we need to do with with more players. And I think that only comes with 
Well, not only, but I think that comes with more coaches being willing to try and test it out so that we can then get the feedback through you and yeah i mean i get i get throwaway comments from snc coaches and from sports scientists who kind of you know when i speak to them about using the tech and they're like well you know is it is it accurate because there's so many so many very small movements in tennis you know we're only moving three meters can a satellite pick that up so they can't there's there's quite a lot of throwaway kind of well i'm not going to use it because of this and actually I, I just don't think that's a valid reason for not using it, but especially like you say, if we explain to the listeners that actually it is pretty accurate and, and there, you know, the, the data is valid. Yeah. Look, I, I would go as far as to say, um, I'd encourage people to, to go and test it for themselves. Look, I, I know it's, I know it's football, um, but FIFA, um, the world governing body for football have conducted their own, uh, independent testing of the technology. Uh, against a gold standard and they did that uh, across numerous trials of, of different um, differing areas um, and we were really really pleased with how the, the technology performed um, kind of to go alongside that like we also take great pride in, in conducting really rigorous internal testing before releasing any hardware to the market um, so and we are happy to share our results and, and our protocols with, with anybody interested um yeah looking at the accuracy and and reliability of technology i'd I'd probably argue that reliability is is the more important of the two um within reason of course like obviously there's there's something very wrong if if you're covering 100 meters and then the distance being reported is 30 meters um but Strong reliability makes it easier for practitioners to detect change from one session to the next. Yeah, like I say, I mean, for, for me, and, and like ninety percent of SNC coaches and tennis will will be only be interested in that player's data versus on, on day one versus that same player's data on day two. Exactly, now, that's really the only thing that is relevant in tennis, unless you're looking to monitor whether an entire squad of players in an academy are working hard enough, you might want to compare other players with each other, but I don't see a huge relevance in that, actually. It's really more understanding each individual player in the sport. Um, and therefore, if you're only working with an N of one and you're using the same unit with that player, you're, you're, you're measuring comparable data from day one to day two. And that's, that's, that's for me, one of the most useful uses of the technology. Firstly, thank you for your time for, for the podcast, Matt, and also Joe and Hannah, thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. Pleasure to... Uh, welcome, enjoyed it. Always enjoy chatting about this stuff. Great. Thanks for having us, Will. But yeah, no, thanks for coming on, guys. Really appreciate it, and I think, uh, think the listeners will like this one. Cheers, Will. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Will. Thank you. As always, thanks for tuning in. You can always check out catapultsports.com and check out our blog there for new and regularly updated information on sports performance, sports science, and other performance analytics articles. So that's catapultsports.com. Jump in and have a look. Until next time, I'm Miles Wilson. Thanks for tuning in. Bounce.